It's the Digigod. Now welcome two men who are as mad as hell and won't take it anymore, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Not so mad, but uh, good try, good intro. To whomever sent that in, Corey, please tell us who sent that in. That was sent in by Satoshi Mariyama, who reminds us that he's from Japan. We figured it out. Ah, Satoshi, thank you very much. Good intro. Uh, Mark, how goes the how goes the battle? That's the worst. <laughs> it's just, you know, I thought I was halfway out the door yeah. and then, you know, found a potential great renter. Now, it might still happen, but you found a potential great renter, you know, yeah. the, the credit report. I'm making the story very short. Yeah. Credit report checks out, you know, single woman, you know, I can keep my place furnished. And you know those episodes of Columbo at the end yeah. when the bad guy thinks he got away with it and mm-hmm. then Peter Falk turns around and says, ah, just one more thing. <laughs> yeah. So my real estate agent, <laughs> I swear to Christ, I, 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 I don't know. I, it, 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 he may listen to this, which, of course, he won't. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything. But he says, oh, one more thing. Uh, she has an upright piano. Mm-hmm. And I said, a what? An upright piano? An upright? Are you kidding me? I mean, yes, I'm in a condo, but it's basically an apartment. You can't take a piano into it. Well, she's a music editor, too. She does some music editing on the side. You hmm. can't take a piano into First of all, the piano may not even fit through the, my front door. You know, this building is very old and lame. Yeah. The building, this, building, this building is old and lame, and it's very possible the piano will not fit through the front door. And even if it does fit through the front door, are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, is, well. is, is she Billy Joel two hours a night practicing? <laughs> what is she doing? Okay? I mean, if it's an upright, if, if it was an electric piano, I could say, okay, look, if somebody complains, you can plug in headsets. Right? But if it's an upright piano, the moment somebody complains, she'll be unhappy. The neighbors will be unhappy. Right? Yeah. The, the neighbors will hate her. The neighbors will hate me for renting it to somebody who owns a goddamn piano. <laughs> and she'll be unhappy. Yeah. So... I, I mean, I'm having my real estate agent call her and just getting some parameters because I mean, we have nobody else. She's so it. if you if you're if you're a bigot against someone because they play the piano, what do you call that person? A pian- pianistist? Uh, is that would that be the word? A pianistist? Is that a word? Is this on? No. Is this thing on? I don't know. And yeah. by the way, she probably saw my sax. Yeah. And she probably walked in the door and thought, oh, I, I, you know what? I, she probably thought, oh, there's a musician lives here. This is great. I can bring my piano. <laughs> she doesn't realize that I play my sax when I'm here Yeah. so low. Mm-hmm. All I can discern is that I'm playing the right notes. I don't know about the tone or the quality or the volume. And nothing. All I know is I play it so low that all, I, I barely know if I'm playing the right notes. So she came in here and thought, wow, it's a sax player. This yeah. building is instrument friendly. Well, you know what? I don't know that it is. So... It just—I mean, can you imagine? Mm. Can you imagine some he, the, the the real estate guy? He's building her up. She's perfect. She's got like, she's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in reserves in her checking account, right? Mm-hmm. So she'd be she'd pay the rent on mortgage on time, I would hope. And the last thing he says is, "Oh, by the way, there's one more thing." And I'm thinking, what could this possibly be? She has seven kids. Yeah, 
all all under age five. I don't no. know how that would work mathematically, but exactly. you know. Oh, she has an upright piano. Uh, are you are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, come on. Anyway, well, all right. So my, my real estate agent <laughs> might call during this podcast. Oh, that's all right. Because I, I I said, look, you got to call them up and you got to get some parameters here. Because I mean, I'm I mean, it, it would break my heart, but I'm about to bail out. Hmm. Sorry. Thank you. Well, we have well, nobody else to look at. She's it. She's the only game in town. I got nobody else to look at this place. We've had about six people look. Yeah. One couple wanted it for six months because they were remodeling their home, and I didn't want to lease it for six. You'll months. You'll get. More. It's got to be a got to be a year. You'll get more. You'll sure, get but I mean, you realize that starting on October second. Yeah. I have to be at work at four thirty in the morning. Oh. I have to be at work at four thirty in the morning. I have to be at work at four thirty oh. in the morning. <laughs> I have to be at work at four thirty in the morning. That's insane. I so I mean I cannot wait to get the hell out of here. Yeah. I mean. Uh, I should probably just let her bring the goddamn piano in anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Uh, from that to some kid vid, by the way, my daughter is hilarious. You know what she said the other day? I, what the hell? I have no faults. I'm too young. I have no faults. I'm too young. That's what I'm dealing with. I think she's right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so KidVid, real quickly, uh, we got some Nickelodeon titles that are new, including Shimmer and Shine, Magical Pets of Zarame Falls. The Shimmer and Shine little genie girls are adorable. They have the same big heads as the uh, Nickelodeon uh, bubble guppies. If you are familiar with bubble guppies, you know how that whole big head, big eye thing works. It's a, it's a whole uh, cute aesthetic that they're pretty, they've mastered over at Nickelodeon. Uh, in any case, uh, this is Shimmer and Shine, Zarame Falls. Uh, the magical pets of Zam- Zarame Falls, and uh, you know, as if the girls weren't cute enough, they've got uh, you know, got eight episodes here with uh, cute little pets, and uh, that's all you need to know. Dragon pox and uh, pet bedroom, it's all just insufferably adorable. And then not so adorable, uh, more Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is Wanted, Bebop, and Rocksteady. Uh, this is uh, actually, uh, this made it to DVD before it made it to television. I'm not quite sure what the whole point of that was. But, uh, it, you know, the, the, the idea is that uh, there's some time travel involved here and Shredder and Krang go to, to, from the 80s to New York. And anyway, it's, uh, it's a whole kind of a retro meta turtle thing. It, it, ain't, it ain't great. Uh, three episodes here. It's okay. Uh, also from Nickelodeon. Blaze and the Monster Machines, Wild Wheels, Escape to Animal Island. Pretty much more of the same, uh, strictly for kids that uh, just love all these really wild contraption monster truck things that they invent, Blaze and all the rest of them. Uh, Four episodes here, Animal Island, Two Can Do It. Terrible pun. Uh, The Big Ant Venture and Falcon Quest. Sounds like Falcon Crest for those of us that are a certain age. Uh, Paw Patrol, The Great Pirate Rescue. Cute dogs playing pirates. Really not much else to it. Never really got into this. The dogs are cute. Everything on Nickelodeon is about look cute. Don't worry about the writing. Uh, Disney gave us Mickey and the Roadster Racers. Start your engines. You know what? This is actually an entertaining show. It's kind of growing on me. It's kind of growing on me. Mickey and the Roadster Racers. Is that because you've watched so much KidVid that your bar is lowered? It's so unbelievably lowered. No, because I like Minnie's car. It's really cute. And the whole thing has kind of a a wacky races vibe to it, you know, which I always enjoyed. Didn't really ever matter who won. You just watched it for the cars and the characters. So uh, this is, you know, Disney Junior. That's actually uh, pretty smart. Uh, There are uh, six episodes on this one, including Abracagoof which doesn't roll off the tongue very easily, but it's uh, actually a cute episode. Uh, Disney Descendants, 
Uh, this is Descendants 2, the sequel to the original Descendants. I, I got to be honest, it's a whole kind of a, a, a kid pirate thing. It doesn't, it, I, I suffered through about uh, 25 minutes of this. It's 90 minutes long. I couldn't, I couldn't get past 25 minutes. I couldn't. I honestly couldn't. Uh, so I don't know how it ends. I assume it ends with some kind of pirate dancing. It's like, you know what this is? This is like if somebody decided to do Pirates of the Caribbean, except uh, tone it down to a G-rated version of High School Musical. That's what this is. It's isn't very High School odd. Musical? Isn't High School Musical already G-rated? Yeah, but it doesn't have pirates. Ooh. Uh, Peanuts, School Days. 29 new Peanuts shorts. None of them as good as any of the originals. Uh, the animation is a little peculiar. i got to be honest. It's not the same. But uh, it's okay. You know, uh, this stuff kind of uh, has been made over the last few years. And uh, there's, a, there's a few in here that are okay. Uh, things like On the Campaign Trail. That was kind of cute. Uh, Keep Your Chin Up, Charlie Brown. It's kind of cute. But, uh, you know, two discs, 29, uh, 29 episodes, 29 shorts. It's, you know, only if you're a crazy completist. Trick or Treat on Sesame Street. I was going to save this for the uh, Halloween show, but uh, why? <laughs> It'd be another month. Uh, go get it now. It's okay. Uh, there, there are three kind of Halloween-y episodes on here. I may bring this back for the Halloween stuff. Uh, Do the Batty Bat, Trick, or, uh, Trick and Treats, and Happy Halloween. Uh, and then they also have the uh, Sesame Streets, the Sesame Dress Up Club. It's, you know, to get kids into the Halloween mood and whatnot. Also from PBS Kids, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, King Daniel for a Day. Still don't really get this. Uh, six epi- uh, seven episodes here. Um, uh, you know, Daniel Tiger is uh, sort of storybookish animation. I'm not quite clear on who watches it. Uh, Odd Squad, worst acting in the world. These kids are terrible, but the people seem to like the show. So Odd Squad villains, the best of the worst. Uh, I've seen a few episodes of Odd Squad as I've needed to, and I never really realized that anybody on these shows is a villain. So uh, that shows you how innocuous these shows are. Uh, There are four episodes here, four stories, and, uh, you know, just if you can suffer through the acting, you'll you'll get with it. Uh, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, Fluttershy. Uh, if uh, do we have any bronies who are listeners? I want to do a show called uh, My Little Pony Friendship Sucks. Go f yourself. <laughs> You're That's in that kind of mood, mood are you? <laughs> piano, goddamn piano! Are you kidding me? Come on! I mean anything, anything. A dog. Harmonica. She owns a, sh- a Shetland pony. She owns a Shetland pony. <laughs> great. It's dotted line. Make it happen. Uh, that'd be great in the elevator. That would be. Uh, anyway, the, uh, so, you know, in, in the world of Equestria, the, uh, the Pegasus Pony is sort of their, their very special, uh, special rainbow horse or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so the rainbow, the rainbow Pegasus Pony is, uh, is, uh, Fluttershy. Anyway, that's... That's the adventure here. Uh, so there are five episodes here and a sing-along, and it's really just for, you know, little little girls and bronies, those creepy people. I'd love to interview a brony and really really get to the meat of what the obsession is when a grown man responds to this show. You know, Harry Dean Stanton died. I know, 91. But if you saw him on that last season of Twin Peaks... You you could tell he was he was literally just hanging on to finish it up for David. No, well, yeah, well that's true. And I remember he did a cameo in one of the Avengers films. Yeah, right. There was, a, it was a, somebody falls from the sky and they fall into a warehouse and he plays the security guard at the warehouse. Yep. And at the time I hadn't seen him, 
in a maybe a couple of years, and he shows up, and you're like, oh, my God, Harry. I know. Happened? But at that time, he was probably 89 or something, or 88. Yeah. And it just was so sad, but he was the man. Yeah. He was born yeah. on my birthday. Uh, I know. My 14th. Uh, three more three more kid deals here. Uh, Peking Duckling, Seize the Day. Uh, I don't know where some of this stuff comes from. This is from Shout Kids. I, I honestly don't know where this appears or if it's appeared on television, uh, but Peking Duckling uh, is is kind of subversive in a very, very strange way. Uh, he's got you know a friend who's a pig and another friend who's a wombat, and uh, there's, there's, there's some really very kind of almost uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle-ish subversive writing in here. It's almost, it's not like Simpsons or Family Guy subversive, but it gets there. It gets there. So it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's good for kids, but I think adults will enjoy it too. But boy, there's some, you know, you kind of go, well, it's an interesting show. Uh, so uh, yeah, Peking Duckling. It's always ducks. Why are ducks always the, whether it's Donald or Daffy or Peking, ducks always have something going on in cartoons. They're never sweet and wonderful. Well, no, they're sweet and delicious too, yeah, Peking Duck. Uh, Revolting Rhymes. These are animated shorts based on the stories of Roald Dahl. It's really good animation. It's, uh, it's 3D CG animation. And uh, really very interesting takes. I think this is very, very sharp. Really worth checking out. Really worth looking at. Uh, it's, it's, um, some of this stuff might uh, eventually inspire um, uh, some feature films, I would think. Uh, it's worth looking at. But in any case, it's, uh, all of this is a, a, a book that was written by Roald Dahl that was called Revolting Rhymes, where he kind of does a, a kind of a mix and match of classical fairy tales, and it's really very clever. It's not, it's not quite on the level of, uh, say, Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim mix and match, or, or even quite as acerbic as something like uh, Shrek. But it's in that ballpark, and, it's really, and it has some great voice casting, uh, it's very, very clever. I think it's, uh, I think it's worth checking out. So that is Revolting Rhymes, Magical Fairy Tales with Unexpected Twists. Worth looking at. And then PJ Masks, Time to Be a Hero. Uh, this skews very, very young for kids that want their, their superheroes, uh, to be extremely accessible. And, uh, there are six episodes here, a couple little, uh, bonus things, including a music video. And, uh, the superheroes in question, of course, are Catboy, Owlet, and Gecko. And uh, it's uh, you know cute little cute little superhero missions for little toddlers. It's uh, this is like your Marvel starter kit. So there it is. And from toddler superheroes, Mark, you uh, appear to be having some kind of a relationship with your keyboard right now. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Well, you're ruining it. I'm trying to do something funny, and now it is ruined. <laughs> oh, okay, I wasn't sure what you were doing. Okay. Uh, shall, shall we carry on and move to the next segment while you <laughs> keep doing something you know, funny? No. I, shall I back I, it up I, and I, stop I, the recording no. and restart? No, so? we're not okay. doing that. Okay. I was trying to find. See now you're now now <laughs> I will tell you what the joke is without actually playing the joke because I couldn't find the joke and you okay. ruined the joke. But uh. the joke was I was going to say, oh wait, here's a recording of uh, of the woman playing the piano in my apartment. And I was trying to find somebody obnoxiously banging on a piano, but you ruined the joke. You could have asked me to record my daughter banging on ours earlier yeah. this week. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, speaking of superheroes, we have... Uh... I don't like that. That's her. Okay. Saturday night, one in the morning. <laughs> That's going to be her. 
That's fantastic. Okay, you know what? That joke went nowhere, mainly because I, I did not have time to properly research the joke. That's okay. The bridge was out on the road to comedy. So we have new movies this week. We have two superhero movies. Now, we can talk about... Which one are we going to talk about first? Are we going to talk about Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, or Wonder Woman? I'd rather talk. You know what? I'd, I, I'd like to combine the two and talk about Wonder Woman's underpants. I knew you. See, I set you up for that. Don't say I don't do you favors. Uh, I didn't see that. Huh? I didn't see that. What? Captain Underpants? Oh, why would I see that? I, I, because, did you see uh, it? Yeah, unfortunately, wow. yeah. I did, yeah. Take him for the team. Uh, uh, well, yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's terrible. Um, well, the thing is, I guess, you, look, Christy Lemire said you sort of have to be like an eight-year-old boy to appreciate this, which, of which she has one. And uh, so I'm going to take her word for it. Uh, no way my daughter's getting near this. This is just absolutely ridiculous stuff. But apparently it is, uh, it is a popular book or some such thing. And uh, I, I, I don't really understand it. The animation, the animation's extreme. You can tell that when you look at it. And the whole idea of a guy who's a little, you know, who gets... Uh, well, it ter- accidentally hypnotized and turned into uh, the hero Captain Underpants. It, um, I don't know, it's just so juvenile. Now, Captain Lingerie, that, oh, I want to see that movie. Yeah. Uh, this thing didn't really do any business, so I don't think this is going to uh, go anywhere in the future. Uh, but again, if you have a, an eight-year-old boy and you want them to just giggle at the every utterance of the word underpants, I guess there's probably something here. What's really sad, this is a Blu-ray, DVD, and a digital copy combo set. What's really upsetting is that uh, this is a DreamWorks animated film. This is where DreamWorks animation has gone to. And uh, I don't, you know, DreamWorks animation was there for a moment. It was... It was in the in the running up against Pixar. I mean, Shrek was huge. Shrek Two was was even bigger. Uh, well, yeah, but it's also what happened to DreamWorks. Not just DreamWorks Animation. The I whole know, thing but DreamWorks. Just, but the, DreamWorks the, the, Animation. The dream is dead. It, it is, and it's so sad because I was there the day that they had the big announcement over in Playa del Rey, and they talked about the studio lot they were going to build, and everything just completely fell apart. It's just it's one of the great tragedies of this business in the last 20-some years. But anyway. But Dreamworks this is, Animation, I mean, they're owned by Universal. So at least, I mean, they're, they're a subsidiary now of NBC Universal. Yeah, but it's So just, at least now, at least DreamWorks does have at least some sort of an output or outlet the, or money coming the, in. The brand of DreamWorks Animation was once so promising. And it was right up there, you know, neck and neck with Pixar. So anyway. Mark, t- let's talk about Wonder Woman. Um, Smash of the Summer. This was a surprise smash of the summer. I, I remember when... Was it uh, a surprise, though, really? Yes. Was okay, it? no. You and I were talking, oh, it'll, it'll make 60 opening weekend. Yeah. Because it, 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 it didn't seem... There were some production problems. Patty Jenkins kind of untested. You know, they've, they've been trying to do this for so long, and it just seemed like it just was going to be like just a don't suck situation yeah. as opposed to be great. And the thing is that, I, although I, 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 I will say I think the movie's a little overpraised because... It's good, but because it's good, people are saying it's great. Because I think the, the I think people's expectations were a little bit low, and the fact that it is legitimately a good movie, one of the better. And the reason why I like this movie is because it has, it doesn't have a lot of snark. Yeah, it's fairly sincere. Yeah, it hits the beats that the Avengers films with the Joss Whedon clever yeah. dialogue, quippy quip thing yeah. don't have. And I like that. See, I I think it's. I think it is as good as people were, were portraying. The, what I don't think is particularly good about it is uh, is the, 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 the twisty-twisty at the end. 
Okay, uh, first of all, the fact that he, an actor who we hate, yeah. winds up being like the ultimate bad guy, yeah. I just was like, oh, him of all yeah. people? Yeah. Uh, but that shows you how little faith they might have had in this film, because if he's the only guy you can get to be your big villain, yeah, you couldn't and, get a big superstar? And, well, and there's a, I, well, I won't give it away for anybody that doesn't know, but there's some, there's some stuff they do at the end that, that is sort of... It, you know, the Twilight Zonization of movies, which began with both Christopher Nolan and M. Night Shyamalan, the two of them are the ones that really pushed for the whole twisty-twisty at the end. Uh, the oh, the ha! And then that's now the thing. And every movie has to have an oh and a ha, and you got to have the double punch. And, and we might even be able to go back further to something like Fatal Attraction, where that, that begins, where you've got to, like, you know, you can't just sort of have a thoughtful ending. It has to be a... Uh, a big, a big shocky shock followed by a twisty shock, and and that's it gets annoying and, and cloying at a certain point. So anyway, despite that, here's what I think is great about Wonder Woman. First of all, she's a great hero. We love Wonder Woman, but they did some very, very smart things in updating this. Uh, the backdrop, the origin backdrop, is no longer World War II. It's now World War One because I think they rightfully said uh, uh, Captain America did the World War II thing. So we can't go to that well. So let's drop it back to World War One, which obviously was planned pre, or pri you know, some years ago, because that was part of the the photograph, right? That is in uh, Batman versus Superman, the photograph that is part of this movie, right? So that's all part of the saga as as sketched out several years ago. But uh, I think that was smart. I also think the the redesign of her costume is very smart. Now I don't know if anybody noticed this, but because I didn't read anybody remarking on it, but what they did was they took the costume, which was originally designed in the 1930s and 40s to be kind of a, a variation on a pinup girl, the skirt, the bustier, all of that stuff, uh, a, head, a headband that looks like a tiara, right? That was what that all was. And they just slightly changed it ever so much, so it's the same, but now it's no longer pinup girl styling now it's more sort of greco-roman warrior styling the skirt is very much uh classical civilization what spartan warriors wore the 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 her her wrist bracelets are more kind of you know armor the bustier is more like armor and they took what the headband thing and instead of being like a tiara with the little thing pointed up they flipped it so now it points down almost like a crusader helmet Right, all these very clever. I think this film, for all that alone, deserves an Oscar nomination for costume design because it is it is conceptually an amazing thing. They kept it the same, but they made it different. Well, they also had they also had to desexualize it to some extent. Yeah, that's fine. You know, but uh, look, Chris yeah. Pine normally bugs the crap out of me, he and I thought he was I thought he was great here because he didn't have to carry the movie. He got to be the quippy guy. You know, he got she, he let her do all the, all the heavy lifting, and he got to you know be the guy who hides his privates and has all those those fun little supporting moments. He bugs the crap out of me too, but I, I, but I, I did like him in this also. Yeah. But you're right. The, the, what I liked about it is that it had a certain mythic quality to it. Yeah. Um, that was a different beat for these kind of movies. And, and she's, she's tremendous, isn't she? Great. Yeah, she's great. She's great. She's the one. So uh, they sent this to us on uh, 4K, and it is worth every single solitary pixel that 4K gives you. Uh, it really, it really, uh, everything pops. The, 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 the stuff that I usually don't like about Zack Snyder's world, and of course, again, Patty Jenkins directed this, not Zack Snyder, but the costume still belongs to the Zack Snyder tradition, right? It looks, uh, you know, everything in well, Zack he, Snyder's he directed world, her in... Uh, the, 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 in the, Batman vs. Superman. And everything, all the costumes in, in, ba in Zack Snyder's world, they all look wet and shiny and metallic. They just do. That's his thing. 
And uh, this has the same, but boy, does all of that pop in 4K. It really is, uh, it's just spectacular and gorgeous and uh, really, really uh, a great uh, addition to the format. Also includes Blu-ray and a uh, digital a digital copy code for uh, Ultraviolet, and uh, it's, uh, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. So I highly recommend everybody uh, picking up Wonder Woman. I would, too. Yeah, absolutely. for sure, for sure. Uh, let's see. You know, Mark, here's one that I did not... I will let you speak your piece on that so that I, I can chime in because I have some I have certain opinions, but this was a Lafka thing, so carry on. Oh, this movie? Yeah. Well, what I didn't like about we're talking about uh, the Criterion edition of Certain Women, and um, I have to say the one thing I didn't like about this film was that we gave uh, Lily Gladstone our best supporting actress, yeah. and I got to tell you, by the way, certain you know Certain Women, good film. Um, you know, the director, Kelly Reichardt, has a gift for... Slow Yeah, movies. but telling effective stories of ordinary yeah. people. I think that's terrific. There's nothing wrong about but that. her movies are slow. The movies they, are, they are really slow. Very I mean, slow, very gentle, very elliptical. Yeah. Um, what I didn't like was that we gave uh, Lily Gladstone, who's perfectly fine, uh, our best supporting actress, because I just mm. think it was such a... It was, it was just like such a like a... And, and look, I, I'm, I'm as liberal as they come, but I, even I have to call it out where it's, where, where it's BS. It was such a, let's give the Native American actress an award <laughs> so that we can feel good about ourselves. And it really just annoyed the crap out of me. But, I, uh, I, you know, look, I have tried for years to, to give Kelly Reichert the, the benefit of the doubt, and I just, I, I, can't, I can't get there. I, the movies just feel so underbaked to me. It feels like uh, see where 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 you see underbaked, other people see subtlety. Yeah, I love subtlety, but I just don't. I don't feel like there's the, the drama is missing. It, it. I get that there's subtlety, but there's subtlety in the service of not a whole lot. But the drama is almost little tiny poetic little decisions that the characters have to make. It's okay. not like save the world or anything like that. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, and it just it and by the way, it also gives you know uh, uh, Laura Dern plays a there's a couple of intersecting stories or individual stories mm-hmm. in this thing. You know Laura uh, Laura Dern plays a lawyer and she's got a difficult client uh, who's played by Jared Harris. And by the way, anything that gives Jared Harris work is okay with me. I'm I'm fine. He's with great. That he's yeah. kind of a, he's a bit of a pathetic figure, but he's also kind of very frightening. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. And then. You've also got Michelle Williams. She's building a house with her, with her husband and the daughter, and so you, you get a sense of what their family dynamic is, um, and just 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 a lot of subtlety to it. A lot of little tiny episodes where you're like their behavior is kind of illuminated with like one little line of dialogue. Um, and there's a third story also. It's Kristen Stewart. She's playing a uh, she's like this young lawyer who's teaching a night class at this at this school in the middle of nowhere, and she winds up. Being friends with his ranch hand, played by Lily Gladstone, and um, you know that's the one that I liked the least. It seemed the most um, it seemed the most predictable and most schematic to me. But uh, you know, if you like this director, I think it's it's completely in line with the previous work. You know, if you yeah. don't like this director, then forget it. You won't like it because it is slow, and it doesn't have these in, instead of like emotional beats, it has like emotional little tiny. Little tiny bumps. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Uh, so, uh, all right. 
Anyway, uh, certain women, Kelly Reichert, it's director approved Blu-ray edition from Criterion with, uh, you know, some, some extras on here and interviews with uh, Reichert and Todd Haynes who produced it. And I guess, I, you know, it's Criterion. I've got, I got to support Criterion, but there are movies that I, I struggle with. Uh, we got a bunch of movies that have pictures of people holding guns on the cover this week, so we're going to cover them all at once here uh, because it's a, it's a marketing motif. Why not? Uh, suspense thriller with Joel Edgerton called It Comes at Night, which uh, was okay. Uh, much better than it really had any, bu- any business being, largely because it has some very, very good actors in it. Uh, Joel Edgerton, primarily, who just really elevates nearly everything that he's in, as long as he's not playing Pharaoh. But uh, it's still not, it's, you know, it's not brilliant. Most thrillers these days all seem derivative and, uh, and uh, evoke a certain Hitchcockian collection of motifs. There's not a whole lot that's uh, really that new and refreshing about them. So this kind of falls into the uh, desperate hours class of thriller, I guess, the noirish thriller, where you, uh, you have a couple of parents who... Um, Let's say let's say it's it's a it's a collision of two different families uh, with children caught in the middle and uh, there are other things happening beyond the confines of the house and it it, it it I won't give anything away but it's it's not as exciting as it probably sounds from the way I described it. Then we also have a first kill which shows you uh, exactly what happens to people when they get either too old or when nobody wants to cast them anymore because they're not very good actors. Hayden Christensen, who was once upon a time Darth Vader, uh, stars with Bruce Willis in First Kill, which has one of the dumbest taglines that I've ever heard. Mark, read the tagline for the folks. First Kill, when you only have one shot, don't miss. What is wrong with uh, 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 Bruce Willis? (laughs) They, I mean, why is he? I, what is he thinking? They why pay is he him doing money. This? They give him money. But he doesn't need to become Steven Seagal. He's Bruce Willis. Yeah, well, that's why he's not in cartels. Because that <laughs> oh, is. Oh, <laughs> look at that. I didn't see that. Yeah, look at me. So this is with Hayden. I didn't see that. I, I, I didn't see that. So this is with Hayden Christensen, yeah, too? Poor guy. Yeah, I know. I, and I, don't th- I honestly think Hayden Christensen caught a, a lot of bad flack as an actor. I, think a lot, I, think, I don't think he's as bad as people pretended that he was at the time. Well, there, well here's the thing. As, 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 um, as our friend Ray Green has said many times, there's no such thing as a bad performance. It's either bad casting or bad direction. Yeah. Either you were the, wrong, you were the wrong person for the role or the director... Just which, didn't which, modulate you. Didn't modulate didn't you, which in the... In the and of Hayden Christensen, that would be the case. And certain actors need better direct, need direction more than others. You know, my father always said Betty Davis needed a good director, desperately needed one. She didn't. She was never outside herself enough to be able to to do what someone like Spencer Tracy could do. Spencer Tracy could have been there with a crap director. You know, same with Gary Cooper. They just knew what to do. Uh, Depardieu is the same way. They just know what to do. Some actors need a director badly. They they lean on that. And and I think Betty Davis knew that because that's why she insisted on always working with William Wyler and other directors that that knew her well. She could trust them to pull the best out of her. Um, you know, Bruce Willis is good in this. I'll tell you, he's another one of those guys. Bruce Willis doesn't really ever give a bad performance. He doesn't. No, he's Bruce Willis. He's Bruce Willis. Uh, Hayden Christensen, he's not terrible in this, but, uh, you know, this is just a silly, this is another silly little action thriller, and, you know, somebody witnesses the murder of a cop, and uh, then there's a whole, you know, kind of a a crooked, uh, crooked cop underground 
plot going on. And, and, you know, Bruce Willis plays the police chief and does a perfectly good job. But all the twists and turns are really rather contrived. Speaking of Steven Seagal, who dyes every single follicle on his face and head, uh, he stars along with somebody named Georges St. Pierre that I guess I'm supposed to know, and Luke Goss, who I obviously do know, in Cartels. Here's another great tagline. I have to read this one now? Read this one, because this one makes even less sense. Cartels, Luke Goss. In this game, there is only one king. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> if, the movie, if the movie was called, like, Chess or something, right. I guess. But Cartel, this is, this is And what, by the way, is this guy's name really George St. Dash Pierre or Period Pierre? Uh, yeah. It's Pierre, not no. St. Dash Pierre. But Cartels, in this game, there is only one king. Nothing about that makes sense. There's know. no game called Cartels. No. The only game that has a king is Chess, so that already doesn't make sense. So I don't... Like, what? what is... Who, what? Someone was paid money for that? I don't understand. Anyway, as, as you might gather from the, uh, from the uh, title, this is about drug cartels and taking them down. And uh, Luke Goss plays a marshal and, uh, you know, this St. Pierre guy who's some kind of UFC fighter. Uh, they're all, you know, on the game. And then uh, Steven Seagal plays some kind of hotshot agent it doesn't really work it's terrible uh and then lastly on the gun front is starship troopers trader of mars now the uh new 4k version of the original starship troopers is supposed to be out this week we did not get a copy yet i'm assuming that sony will get us one at some point uh but uh sony's been fairly stingy with the 4ks of late so uh we are awaiting hopefully a cool uh, starship troopers in any case, um, meanwhile, we have yet another Starship Troopers, which is a photorealistic CG, and uh, it's not terrible. I wish there had been more put into this. Ed Newmeyer, who, of course, is the genius that uh, came up with the, uh, uh, the original uh, Starship Troopers uh, plot, Ed Newmeyer is just a funny, funny screenwriter, he wrote this screenplay, and it is indeed good. It would be better with real actors. It would be better with, uh, you know, if it were not just so completely artificial, if they had really kind of owned it and give, put a lot of money into it. Masaru Matsumoto, who co-directed it, along with uh, Shinji Aramaki, uh, they do a very, very good job. These guys come out of photorealistic Japanese films, so there's a slight cultural disconnect there, but... Um, it, for the most part, it's it's good. I just wish it were I wish it were better. Uh, a bunch of uh, little featurettes here, a photo gallery, and you know things behind the the bugs and the powered suits and the story and uh, how they've expanded the universe. But uh, on balance, I, I'm I'm still behind it, even if it is a little bit of a disappointment. You know who's never disappointing? Uh, Sam yeah. Elliott. I know, isn't he great? He's 72 years old. He's so good. And he is awesome. Yeah. He is front and center in a film called The Hero which is now out on Blu-ray. Um, he plays a guy, he used to be a uh, film star, now he's kind of like uh, gone to seed, he's 72 years old, he's got cancer, but uh, he still wants to have a comeback, and he still he wants to reconnect with his, uh, with his estranged daughter, and he wants to um, romance a younger woman, which I, I find that stuff annoying. Like he's 72 years old. He does, does he really need to have an affair with Laura Prepon, who just had a baby with Ben Foster, by the way? Oh, really? Um, I didn't yeah, know that. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, so here's the thing with this movie. It's um it's 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 a bit it's a bit riddled with clichés. Definitely a lot of déjà vu hanging on to this movie, but the director um 
Brett Haley, who I do not know who that is. I did not see his last movie I'll see in my dreams. Um, he's smart because he just sticks to Sam Elliott because his voice is great. That, that face is great. He puts a whole lot of just depth of feeling into what probably would have felt a lot more cliched if it was anybody else but Sam Elliott. And so, um, yeah, so that's it. So Sam Elliott is terrific in The Hero. Um, we'll definitely check it out. One of the big surprises of the summer, uh, speaking of uh, uh, Wonder Woman before, now we have The Big Sick. Now, The Big Sick is the story, it's a true story of who, uh, I, I can't always get his name wrong, Kumail Nanjiani. Yes. He's the guy from Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And his real life story is pretty amazing, where he meets a girl, they go out, falling in love. During the courtship period, she winds up developing this grave illness where she has to be in an induced coma for X number of A grave days. illness that may put her in the grave? Wiggles? Mm. Um, that may kill her, induced into a coma. Meanwhile, her traditional Muslim family doesn't want to know that he's dating an American girl. They want to know that he's going to marry a Muslim. Oh, yeah. So what you get is a film that is juggling a lot of different themes. You're talking about religious themes, assimilation, just the difficulty in dating. You get the movie juggles a lot, but it stays true to itself. It's always funny. It was um, Judd Apatow produced this thing. Um, It was written by, it was co written by. Um, Nanjiani and the wife, who obviously didn't ah. die because she lived long enough to write this movie. Sure. So, what's great about it is that it's whole, it's completely commercial. Maybe a little too commercial because there's some pretty deep stuff that it you got, a, got a great reaction at Sundance. It's got a, was, you know, yeah. it's it, you know why because it's it's warm, it's winning, it's fun. It juggles a lot of stuff very deftly. Um, yeah, sometimes I wish that it had gotten a little bit darker, but it's almost a little too commercial. But you know what? It's really well done. And um, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter play the girlfriend's parents. Uh, Zoe Kazan, who spends half the movie in a coma, uh, mm-hmm. is still uh, still that. She's got that Zoe Deschanel yeah. funky look to her. Um, but I, I, I cannot recommend Big Sick highly enough. It's a great rental. Um, if you love it, go ahead and buy it. But um, it's just a very generous and warm and uh, a little too long, but a uh, good movie. So a little later on the show, we are going to have an interview with our good friend Charles Solomon, who I uh, talked to this week. Who uh, we're, this is the first of, we're going to do for three weeks. We're going to be talking about some amazing books from uh, Disney Publishing, which have all been released. Uh, you know, Disney Publishing is is putting out some coffee table books. They're just absolutely astonishing. And uh, there's one that's a few years old, plus a new one that are both written by Charles. So I decided to talk to Charles about both of them since my daughter's obsessed with both. Uh, the uh, the one from a couple of years ago was uh, Once Upon a Dream from Perot's Sleeping Beauty to Disney's Maleficent. It's the whole artistic history of the uh, beauty, uh, the Sleeping Beauty phenomenon. And he followed that up with an even better book this year, uh, coinciding with the uh, the release of Beauty and the Beast, which is Tale as Old as Time: The Art and Making of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. 
uh, which is uh, which has everything you know from the original animated film to the new live action film and everything in between and the, all the the artwork, the evolution of the arts. Both these books are amazing and uh, they're essential books if you are a fan of uh, animation history. And Charles is as good as it comes when it comes to animation history. So uh, we're going to have a little interview with Charles later in the show. And uh, we also are going to have uh, a giveaway. Only one. What? Very, very special giveaway. Hey. You know? We're going to have a giveaway. No. going to have a giveaway uh, when we do TV in a moment. First, a few documentaries to mention. Mark, you're a, uh, you're a New York person. You it have is, the, it is the town of my birth, although you have it's the, many years ago now. So uh, I knew nothing about uh, Jane Jacobs when I saw Citizen Jane Battle for the City. Had you, are you familiar with Jane Jacobs? Yeah, she's the she's she's subject of Citizen Jane Battle for the City. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, uh, let, me, let me throw another name at you, Robert Moses. Oh, Robert. Mo- well, you know, th- th- there's a highway. There's, there's uh-huh. the Robert Moses uh, uh, highway in, yeah. in New York. Yeah. He was a he was a developer. Yeah. Well, he was he wasn't a, a officially he was a construction. He was the guy that was employed by the city. He worked for the city of New York. I know, I know nothing about this. There's a Robert Moses State Park. Yeah. And Parkway. So, in so New here's York. the thing. Robert Moses was considered the most powerful man in New York. He wasn't the mayor. He wasn't a, an elected official. But he was kind of like J. Edgar Hoover in the sense that in his capacity as a lower-level bureaucrat, he was so powerful that elected officials above him feared him. He was the guy that really sort of thought that he was going to design the future of New York. He was going to decide who got to build what and where and what would be redeveloped how and what would be zoned how, and he was going to sort of strong-arm the city into, into being this amazing sort of futuristic utopia where everyone had a place to live and so forth. And all of these godforsaken uh, giant tenement monstrosities that turned into, you know, huge decaying slums, that was his legacy. Everything he did just kind of turned to junk. He destroyed huge chunks of New York by trying to build these, you know, mega-fascistic, imperial future, hyper, you know, mini-cities. And uh, Jane Jacobs was the community activist who fought him tooth and nail every step of the way. Wow. And this is the amazing story of those battles. Uh, and it is, it is amazing. And you learn a lot about the influence that both Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs had on other cities, Philadelphia and Chicago, and you know, how the legacy of both overdevelopment and activism uh, or you know, overly central planning, how all of that stuff sort of resonated across the country. It's a fascinating documentary, really a fascinating doc, uh, directed by Matt Tyranour. Uh, who previously did Valentino, The Last Emperor, which is also very good. He really outdoes himself here. This is a terrific film. Uh, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. Really, really, really worth seeing uh, as far as documentaries go. Uh, Victoria Campbell is the filmmaker of Monsieur le Président. And uh, this, was, this happened after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti when she, the director, Victoria Campbell, um, met a voodoo priest while she was doing volunteer work to uh, try and rehabilitate uh, or, and you know, just do her, do her level best to do her part in Haiti. And um, it is all about uh, him and uh, how he kind of plugs into... How he plugs into this this effort, how he relates to her life, how he relates to Haiti. Uh, I won't give anything away, but it's it's, it's actually really quite interesting. Uh, very interesting film from Virgil Films, Monsieur le Président. Really worth checking out. This uh, one of the one of the more interesting kind of personal docs I've seen in a while. 
Uh, Disney nature keeps giving us uh, excessively well-photographed cuteness in movies like Born in China, which is really all just about cute animals in China. And, uh, you know, pandas and monkeys and, and snow leopards and all the stuff that they have in China. So uh, this is what Disney nature does. They, you know, they go to faraway places and, and show you and, and just shove your face into well-photographed cuteness. And there you go. So uh, three animal families here that are primarily the focus of this, the panda, the golden monkey, and the snow leopard. And uh, it's all put together in a very polished, professional way, like the wonderful world of Disney would expect. And John Krasinski narrates it very professionally. And uh, it's lovely and cute, and kids will love it. I can't really fault them for anything. And then lastly, uh, Ireland's Wild Coast from PBS on Blu-ray. This is just, uh, it's like, like the Disney nature stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, you learn a lot here, but really, for the most part, you, you know, I mean, the, the history of Ireland is fascinating. It goes back nearly 2,000 years, and you learn all about that stuff. But for the most part, this is just an, a gorgeous part of the world, and uh, makes me want to go there and, and visit it. It's just amazing. Uh, so much wildlife, and it has nothing to do with Dublin or anything. It's just really amazing. It's beautiful. Uh, so Ireland's Wild Coast is, uh, is something you should watch on a rainy day. And then Love, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, this, is, uh, this is made for you, Mark. This was written for you. Dr. Pamela D. will tell you, Mark Kaiser, you, Mark Kaiser. Yes. She will tell you how to keep romance alive and enjoy intimacy after menopause. <laughs> Let me see. Um, yeah. if, if my girlfriend and I make it till she gets into <laughs> menopause, yeah. I'll, I'll be shocked. Yeah. Considering she lives 5,000 miles away. Well, they call it menopause for a reason. Not womanopause. Oh, oh because you. You, it's a man, then you're pausing about oh, your man. It's a goodness. pause and a man and a pause and a man. Oh, it's so funny. We make funny jokes on this By show. By the way, how bad is that Star Trek show going to be? Not, 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 not to change topics, which, of course, I'm now doing. Are you suggesting that uh, menopause is, is uh, part of the show? No, trekopause. I, yeah. I want trekopause. I want okay. them to pre press pause on Star Trek. Okay. That All Star right. Trek Discovery show is going to be so bad. And by the way... Joan Rivers is in this, you know. Okay. She talks about okay, menopause. Get, 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 get it back on track. Anyway, get it there back you on go. Track. Love, Sweat, and Tears uh, is all about menopause with uh, Dr. Pamela D. And we don't mean to make light of it, but it's just not every day that somebody makes a documentary about menopause. And it's, I mean, it's, quite, it's, it's good. And, you know, you should give it to your, your mom or your grandma or somebody. Uh, so you were saying the new Star Trek show. We're looks, moving into TV now. Looks terrible. Yeah. The, the all-access thing. And by the way, the, the, the weirdest... And I haven't seen this either. The weirdest thing is the reception to Seth MacFarlane's Fox show, The Orville. Because yeah, right? Fox, Fox that's, been, that's been polluting my Facebook feed for a month. Well, here's the thing. Fox has been promoting that thing as a comedy. Yeah. From Seth MacFarlane, yeah. funny quippy lines. Turns out it's not really a comedy. It's a drama. And there's some quippy lines in it. And it's confusing the hell out of everybody. It's called the Orville. The Orville's the name of the ship. I, I, it's the name of the ship. It's a he, drama, and they call it the Orville. Be, well, well yeah, that's a, that's a, that's no, that's smart. No, but Fox has been marketing the thing as a comedy. Yeah. Seth MacFarlane, quippy quips, yeah. the whole nine yards. And it turns out that people watched it, and it wound up being vaguely dramatic, making the same sorts of you know, same sorts of socially relevant points that uh, Star Trek made. All right. And uh, people are like, this isn't. Not only is it not funny, yeah. it's not supposed to be funny. Okay. Yeah, I can't really argue. I, well, I, you can argue, and you I, will. I, no, I won't. Okay. So moving into TV, uh, we're going to talk about a little uh, HBO first, but here's our giveaway. Here's our giveaway. Silicon Valley, complete fourth season on Blu-ray. 
which, I, look, Mike Judge, man. Mike Judge was an executive producer on this. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with it, but it has that. It's got the Office Space vibe. Come on, Silicon Valley. And it is funny. It's a very, very good show. Fourth season, this thing is, is cruising along with really, really great uh, casting. i got to be honest, this is a terrific cast. Every single one of these guys, Josh Brenner and Thomas Middleditch and uh, Kamel Nanjiani and uh, Martin Starr. I mean, this is a, this is a really, really great uh, cast, and they're funny, and they hit it, and it takes all the pain out of everything uh, tech in our lives these days. So... Uh, well done, guys. And we've got one copy of Silicon Valley to give away. So get us your um, uh, an email. Send us an email with the uh, let's see. Let me get let me get the exact perfect date for you here, just so that I don't mislead anybody. Make sure this comes to us date stamped in an email to gods at digigods.com no later than September twenty second. September twenty second. Gods at digigods.com. Put Valley in the body, in the uh, subject line, the uh, subject line of the uh, email, and then put your uh, name and address in the body, and we will choose somebody by the uh, 24th. You should get an email by the 24th, uh, letting you know whether or not you've been selected. That's one copy of Silicon Valley, gods at digigods.com, Valley in the subject line. Get it to us by the 22nd. We'll pick the winner by the 24th. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, we, we dig uh, Silicon Valley, and we also dig Veep. Now in its sixth season with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Did you ever think Veep would make it six seasons? Well, season seven is the final season. It's already been announced. And the thing is that the guy who created it, who I think is not on the show anymore, what's his name, Iannucci? Yeah. That guy is hilarious. Yeah. That guy is he, hi, who, hilarious. I never thought this show would no. fly. I and thought maybe maybe two, three years tops. And by the way, you know, Julie... I didn't see this long. By the time you listen to this, we'll know whether or not Julie Louis-Dreyfus won her, like, six consecutive yeah. Emmy for this show. Yeah. You know what? She should recuse herself. Because here's the thing. She'll be... She, because there's a season seven coming, she yeah. would be eligible for an Emmy next season, too. Yeah. Yep. She should recuse herself. She should say, you know what? I've got six. These, I've gotten six of these already. I set the record. That's plenty. I'm going to back away and let somebody. Let's see if she's magnanimous because I think I think Oprah did that. Did she? I think there was a. And let us know at gods at digigods.com. But I think there was a show that Oprah was nominated for like the 17th straight year, and she's like, you know what? I'm going to step back and let a new person kind of ex- take that honor of being nominated. I wish Drivers would do that, although I know she won't. I will say this about Veep. Uh, I, uh, it's a tricky balancing act to do a political satire that does not really appear to take political sides, that isn't sort of being, that isn't poking one party or one issue or one special interest group, but that's rather kind of poking itself at all of the idiosyncrasies of the system generally. Veep does that, and that's that's not an easy thing to do. That's almost a kind of a, a it takes a, an almost Kubrickian cynicism to uh, to find that strange lovey and middle road. But they do it, and they do it on a regular basis, and it's a good show. So uh, that is Veep now in its sixth season on uh, DVD and uh, and digital ultraviolet copy from HBO, going into its seventh and final season on television. Well, they're speaking of television. Yeah. Can I tell you something? Huh. So you know. I was nominated for an Emmy. I know. Congratulations. The Creative Arts Emmy. Yeah. Now, the Creative Arts Emmys were last week. Uh-huh. So I went to the Emmys. All right. As a nominee. Good man. Uh, we lost. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> is that I got to go to the Emmys. And let me tell you something. It's pretty cool. Not only did I get to go to the, the, the ceremony, which was at the Microsoft Theater, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I got to go to the Governor's Ball afterwards, oh. which was at the convention center. Sweet. 
So what they did was we all go to the convention center mm-hmm. and they drape the out the edges. Now the convention center is a very old antiquated building, but they hid that by putting black drapes and pinhole lights all around the circumference of the inside of the convention center. So it had right. like this infinity kind of feel to it. Sure. And then they had all the tables, and in the middle of the convention center was this is a round rotating platform. Uh huh. And on top of that was a is a smaller round rotating platform mm-hmm. where when we walked in there were these four hot female violinists. Nice. In gowns who were playing as we walked in, and they were rotating the small little rotating stage. And then they left. The band came on, and then they would be on the rotating stage. And on top of that. The smaller rotating stage above would be a singer, or maybe two singers. All right. And so we just there was so much food, free alcohol, great Righteous. desserts. It was a lot of fun. Righteous. I have to say, it was a lot Good. of fun. It was, and you know what? It was it, it, since I had no expectation of that that the show we did was even submitted for an Emmy, let alone nominated for an Emmy. I had no expectations of winning, so I was just there to kind of enjoy the experience and take a lot of photos. Lovely. Which I did. Good so man. I'm now the Emmy nominated. Producer. To go along with your ACE nomination. Yeah, that was like 20 years ago. That's okay. doesn't matter. But no one knows what the ACE... Uh, the ACE awards don't exist anymore. That's okay. That's what That makes it more special, oh, doesn't, doesn't it? Though? You, know yeah, what, it does. you know what else is special? This What's is special? us. Uh-huh. You know... I don't, I, don't, I don't like this show. Uh, you know what? This is this is like 30-something for people who, who can't handle 30-something. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's like, it's like like mushier and more sentimental uh, 30... It's like... You know what? This is, this is 30-something for people that never saw 30-something. That think that this is all new. It's really kind of annoying. Well, the guys who did this, uh, Glenn Ficarra and uh, yeah. the, the other guy, yeah. um, I'm a little upset that they're doing this. Although I'm happy for their success, I'm just going to say that they started out doing film, and I kind of wish that they would have kept doing film because I thought those guys were going to be really good filmmakers. Um, but they are doing this, and the thing's a phenomenon. It, the, the real miracle that this show accomplished pulled off is that it somehow managed to get Milo Ventimiglia back <laughs> on the map. I mean, how did that happen? It's true. Um, yeah. But anyway, so Dan is, anyway, so Dan Fogelman is the guy who actually created it and he's, yeah. you know, he look, he did he wrote Tangled, which you and I I remember sitting in the theater sure. with you yeah. at Tangled. Mm-hmm. We're about halfway through the film and we're like, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> like we, were, we were surprised yeah. how much we liked it. Yeah. And then crazy stupid love, but um, anyway. So this is uh, this is us first season. Second season's coming. Uh, this is a great show. People love this show. I, 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 I'm, I'm a man of a certain age, and I'm I feel like it's a little maudlin for me. Yeah. But uh, good for Dan Fogelman. All right. Uh, Ken Burns has also kicked it out of the uh, kicked it up in a, a notch and knocked it out of the park. There's my metaphors for the day with the Vietnam War. Uh, you know what? Ken Burns just does these things effortlessly. It almost seems, and I know there's tons of work here, and and much of the work is done by his staff, his research staff, and uh, he really has this down to a fine-tuned machine. Uh, he's like frontline on steroids. It's really amazing. Um, this is 10 discs, the Vietnam War, done with all of the professionalism, aplomb, and, 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 and creativity that he did the Civil War. It's really, really amazing. I, uh, I, am, I just tip my hat to him. And, uh, you know, he, of course, did the, 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 the World War I bit, too. And he's just, uh, he's really, he's killing it with these things. He's a, he's a master historian and a master filmmaker. And uh, you will learn a lot about the Vietnam War, even if you thought you knew everything. This is uh, co-financed by Florentine Films and uh, WETA, Washington, D.C., 
And uh, there's a little making a feature out on here with some other bonus content. But really, you're getting this for the for the fact that you're going to watch a Blu-ray with amazing photography and amazing archival footage from the Vietnam War along with uh, scholarly and historical insights that will completely shed new light on the way that you thought you understood this conflict. It is uh, it is a masterpiece in every conceivable sense of the word, and that thing's going to win an Emmy as well. Uh, he's Ken Burns. I mean, come on. Yep. He's the man. I mean, he, he's, he's batted a thousand. Yeah. In his career. He has. Yeah, he's, never, he's never made a mistake. No. He doesn't. You know, what, you know, what, you know what a big mistake is? Uh, big Bang Theory, season no. 10. I mean, honestly, Bazinga, is that the best you could do? Like, Bazinga? I mean, come this on. This show is still highly rated. People uh, love this cast. I, don't, I know. It's just I the know. worst. I know. Can somebody let us know why you love this show so much? It's just it's terrible. It's kind of it's the last. so hack. Are there any other three-camera shows left? I don't care. You know what? This should be no <laughs> camera. This should be a no-camera show. That's what this thing should be. Well, you know, they have Young Sheldon that's coming out. So they're, they're, they're doing a spinoff. Oh, spin -off that's right. I didn't is, know that. Uh, is uh, the Jim Parsons character as a kid. But this is, I think, are there any other three camera shows left on, on network we, television? We know uh, uh, Two Broke Girls is gone. Yeah. Wasn't that three camera? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, uh, it is what it is. Here's a one-camera show, Empire, complete third season. This thing was a phenomenon when it came out. Uh, people loved it, and now it's sort of it's sort of in that you know flabby middle age where it's still trying to hang on to some relevance while it, still being not bad. It you know what because they they threw Empire on after some NBA games in the in the fi in the finals and people don't turn their TV off when you know uh, the, everything's over. It, it kind of got a great lead in, but it's look. It, it, let's be honest. This is Dynasty with black people. That's the whole point. That was the pitch. Uh, we're gonna do. We're basically gonna do Dallas or Dynasty or Falcon Crest. We're gonna do one of those shows, except with an all-black cast, and we're gonna put it in the music industry. And that's a great pitch. I'll be honest. That's a really good pitch. The, the, just the name Empire Dynasty. It, it's it's evocative. It makes the association in your head. It's smart. But you, just like those shows, you you run out of all of the, the you know the soapy machinations after a while. It all kind of starts to recycle itself. And people get tired of that. So I think that's a little bit where this show has run to. And uh, it's all right. You know what? It's made, a, it's made a lot of money for a lot of people involved. And uh, I tip my hat to them. But it is running on fumes now. You know, Wade, there was a man. Oh, yeah. All right. There's a um, new DVD set from Time Life. The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, Johnny and Friends. This is Johnny um, in sort of his mid-years. Interviewing Don Rickles, Robin Williams, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Burt Reynolds. God, Burt Reynolds. What does that guy look like now? Jerry Seinfeld, Ronnie Dangerfield, Steve Martin. A lot of great people. The thing is that this is 28 shows, right? 28 full Tonight shows. Mm. Are, you, are you ready for this, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah. With commercials. They include so the commercials in the – it's the you, best. You've got to. It's awesome. Uh, it's awesome. You know – for some reason, because people... Because jo Johnny was all about the sponsors. People forget that. This isn't just being all vintage-y and, uh, oh, let's put the commercials in for kitsch value. Johnny would, would straight up say, and, you know, we, uh, this is my Johnny Carson impression, so don't, don't, don't give me a hard time. I'm not Kevin Spacey. He, Johnny would say, and, and, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this show this evening if it, if it weren't for Oscar Mayer. Oscar Mayer has been so good to us, and uh, they just came on. Uh, they have a new campaign, and we, we really we want you to pay attention to this. And then he'd go, and they'd go to the commercial. Like he would intro the commercial. He would throw to the sponsor like they would in the 1950s. Sure, to Texaco Star Theater. Yeah, what show was the sponsor? That was it. You know, so Johnny was classy that way. He would he would throw to the sponsor, and that's that makes these shows fun. By the way, speaking of uh, Kevin Spacey, yeah. we get further and further afield from what we normally do. Yeah. Uh, did you see the trailer for All the Money in the World? 
I have not. So all the money in the world is the story of the of the yes. of the Getty grandson sure. kidnapping, right? Yeah. It's you a great story. Yeah, it's the Ridley Scott film. Right. Yeah. And so considering it's not a fanboy thing, considering Ridley Scott is in his seventies now, someone's got this. Might be this has got to be the one for him. This yeah. has got. I mean, I I haven't seen the film. Obviously, just saw the trailer. It features um, it features Kevin Spacey as Getty. Yeah. Right. As J. Paul mm. Getty. And he's great, right? Well, he is unrecognizable. To the point where you're like, why didn't they just get a guy who looked like that? Yeah. Kevin <laughs> Spacey. Yeah. You know, it's a little, it's, it throws you off. That's okay. Because you can tell, you know what it is? You can tell it's, there's a difference between like, you can tell it's, it's Kevin Spacey giving a great performance under a lot of great makeup. Which did is different because you, re you know he's wearing makeup. Did you see Rebel in the Rye? The uh, J.D. Salinger thing? I did not. Which everyone's ripping on, even though they shouldn't, because it's not bad. It's like, everyone wants it to be oh, great. Wasn't that last year? No, it's like last week. Oh, Rebel in the Road. What is that? It's a it's a biopic about J.D. Salinger. No, I didn't. There was there was one last year. Well, that, that Miramax thing. No, well, no, it was the Harvey thing. Didn't Harvey do a J.D. Salinger? It was a J.D. Salinger documentary, I swear to Christ. Okay, uh, okay this isn't a documentary. This is a biopic. Oh, it's a biopic. It's a biopic. But you know what I'm talking about. There I know what you're talking about. about yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is a biopic. I, I, I had no idea it existed. Yes, Rebel in the Rye. In any case, uh, Kevin Spacey plays his mentor, his college professor, who was, you know, published his first story and all that stuff. And he's great. He's great. I mean, we forget Kevin Spacey isn't yet a parody of himself, even though he plays one on TV. Rebel in the uh, I'm looking this up. I never heard of it. When, when does it come out? It came out last week. Really? Yeah, I covered it on uh, on Film Week. Well, let me tell you something. It, it has thirty three. It has thirty three percent on Rotten. People tomatoes. hate it. People uh, hate it. They do, and they're wrong. It's yeah, not that bad. I think people just hate you. No, it's not that bad. It's fine. It's fine. It's not too great. phony to love. Mildly informative. Uh, like thankless, I, a thanklessly watchable film. Like I said on the radio, it's not Baywatch. <laughs> Give it some credit. <laughs> it's well made. Is it genius? No. Is it very formulaic? Yes. But it's well acted, and it's got some good scenes. I mean, there's some very good stuff about it. It's very unfortunate. All right. We're uh, coming in on the end of the show here where we're going to uh, throw this Secretary? to What? Ma Madam Secretary? Is this thing still drawing oxygen? Yes, it is. <laughs> Let me. So we're going we're gonna to round out a few more television things, and we're going to kick it into the uh, interview with Charles Solomon and uh, wrap out with a piece of music that you people are going to forever... Make fun of me for. So, uh, first off, the Chicago shows, which is where Dick Wolf is now, uh, he, that's the piggy bank where he's not putting his coins. It's no longer the Law and Order stuff. That kind of, that well has kind of started to run dry. So, he has created all these Chicago shows. And uh, four of them, all four of, all four of them are now out in uh, season sets, starting with. The uh, terrific Chicago Fire, which is now season five. Uh, Chicago PD, season four. Chicago Med, season two. And the brand new Chicago Justice, season one. And uh, I got to say, the best of all of these is Chicago PD, because it stars my new best friend, Jason Begay, uh, who is terrific on this show and has been from the beginning. And having spent a week with him in Jordan at the refugee camp, uh, I can't. I can't watch this. I, I start to cry when I watch this show now. Now you're gonna everything he does, does. you're gonna like just because you know he's in it. No, because he's look. Let me just let me just tell you this. Jason uh, is. What? I mean, I've watched Jason for years as a guy, as a like a guy on TV shows, and you love him because he's got the raspy, the gravelly voice, and he's got the the, the presence, and you know he's got that that heavy thing going um, that always works well in noirs and cop shows. I mean, it's like he was born to be this guy, but. 
um, until you spend time with him. He's such an incredibly giving guy and so sweet and so, uh, so just absolutely genuine. I just love him. I think he's great. And uh, he's in Chicago right now shooting the, uh, the next season and uh, up to his eyeballs in work. But um, I, I really I just can't praise him enough. He's, he's a terrific guy, and this is a great show because of him. And he's the crossover guy on all these shows. You know, he shows up intermittently on all these things. And uh, it's always a pleasure when he does that. But generally speaking, I, I want to throw a, a bone to Dick Wolf as well because these are good shows. Dick Wolf has somehow found a way to sort of reinvent himself time and time and time again as, a, as an ace television producer. Most of these guys will have a decade at best, you know. They'll have a decade where they really throw a lot of stuff at it, whether it's, you know, Glenn Larson, Don Belisario, uh, what's his name, Stephen Bochco had his decade, and then Stephen Cannell had his decade. And these guys kind of all, you know, um, Shonda Rhimes has, has had her, you know, 15-year run now. It kind of seems to be dwindling a little bit. Dick Wolf has been at this for 25 years. I mean, he's been, you know, New York he, under... Because he, he doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. All the other guys try to try to stay fresh by reinventing the wheel. He just sort of tries you the same... He just sells you the same wheel with different hubcaps. Yeah, it's true. And you buy it. Yeah. Well, there are crossover episodes in all of these, Chicago Fire Justice and uh, and PD mainly, not so much with Chicago Med. But the uh, there's some crossover episodes that make it just fun, and it's its own world, and it's all really smartly done. And I remember... Um, talking to Jason a little bit about the crossover stuff, which is logistically, you almost see the ulcer starting to form when, you, when, when you, know, you say, is it tough balancing all the different, like when they put you into three different shows at once and you can, you can see the eyes glazing over, like that's, that's the worst of all possibilities because it's just, there's, it, you know, it, suddenly there are 150 people all trying to manage schedules and, and budgets, and, uh, but somehow it all works. It all works out. Wade, Madam Secretary. Yeah. This thing is uh, this thing is uh, it's about to go to season four. I don't get it. I, I sometimes I think they do these shows just because there's either either just to help the unemployment rate stay low or because there's a hole in the schedule and it's better than color bars. I don't know what the situation is, but this is uh, Tay Leone is the uh, Secretary of State. She's uh, has n not even remotely does she uh, resemble Hillary Clinton not at all. Yeah. Um, Code Black is another uh, another garbage show that I've never seen. Um, this stars. Uh, I'm just letting you know what's out there because I've never seen it. The only thing, I, the only thing, the only reason why I would check out this show out is because it does have a good cast. Marsha Gay Harden's in it. Yeah. Right. She won an Oscar. Sure. Rob Lowe's in it. Guy. He's he's been he's he's looked he's he's looked 42 years old for the last 25 years. <laughs> and Luis Guzman's in it. And the fact and actually I resent Luis Guzman being in the show because the fact that this is giving Luis Guzman a lot of work means he is not being priceless as a supporting actor in movies. Because who doesn't love Luis Guzman? Uh, I love he's me some Luis Guzman all the time. So, as much as possible. But I'm happy he's getting work. So anyway, so that's what this is. It's uh, critical cases and there's doctors in training and uh, doing all sorts of crap. So Code Black Season 2. Beautiful. Just letting you know what's out there. All right. And with that, we are now going to uh, kick it over to Charles Solomon, uh, my very <laughs> frequent uh, colleague on uh, Film Week on KPCC. And he's going to talk about his two absolutely terrific books, which you should get. Everyone should own them. Uh, Tale as Old as Time, The Art and Making of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And uh, his earlier book, Once Upon a Dream, From Perot's Sleeping Beauty to Disney's Maleficent. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is Mr. Charles Solomon. So, so happy to uh, welcome my very dear friend, uh, Charles Solomon. 
to uh, to talk about a couple of his amazing books. Charles, of course, we are on the uh, we're on the radio frequently together, and I learn more about animation just from uh, the few minutes that we're on the on the radio every every time than I than I ever have uh, in the, the rest of my film education. So I uh, you are a you are a perpetual professor to me. And um, you recently published uh, Tale as Old as Time, The Art and Making of Disney's Beauty and the Beast, which uh, I think is an amazing companion piece to your previous Once Upon a Dream on uh, the, the uh, entire Sleeping Beauty uh, phenomenon, which goes all the way from the original Sleeping Beauty art all the way to the animated film right up to Maleficent, the live-action film. Uh, Beauty and the Beast is 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 a one. Let, let's talk about Tale as Old as Time first of all, because um, Disney gives you pretty open access to all of this stuff. But the flip side to that is you've got to you've got to organize this information. How do you even go about putting a book like this together mentally? How do you wrap yourself around it? Well, first I have to think of a way, of a way to wrap myself around all those compliments. <laughs> Particularly since I also learned particularly about French and live-action Japanese films from you when we're on together. So uh, it's, a, it's a reciprocal uh, education. Uh, part of it, I think, part of the, the, the preparation just comes from the fact that I have two degrees in cultural history. So I learned how to do research. And... You know, the old joke is you chisel away everything that doesn't look like an elephant in the block of stone. But when you have some appreciation of the original story, the sources of the artwork, it kind of on out for you. And it, you wouldn't be able to do a book like this from very many other studios because Disney did save so much. Uh, you know, some things have been lost over the years. Some things were stolen. Some things got mislaid. But I can go to the, to the Disney archive or to the animation research library and say, um, can I see the story notes from Sleeping Beauty when Walt was talking about what he wanted, um, you know, in, in, a, in the film or in a particular sequence? Uh, I recently came across uh, some other notes for Sleeping Beauty where Walt is telling the story artist, Oh, you just go ahead and do it. We'll, we'll sit in the back seat and, and, and backseat drive a little bit. And then he proceeds to go through the whole sequence of Aurora singing in the forest to the birds and basically beat by beat, and in some cases almost shot by shot, say, this is what should be happening. And that's one of the things that interests me most, being too young to have ever been able to interview Walt himself. He's this fascinating figure. Um... You know, he was clearly a genius, a word I think is terribly overused, but I think animation has produced three. Uh, Windsor McKay, who basically creates the art form out of nothing. Yeah. Uh, Walt Disney, who completely reimagines an art form according to his vision. And I think increasingly Hayao Miyazaki, who's done the same thing, uh, but with his own vocabulary. And so these story notes are the closest you can get to actually being in a session with Walt and hearing, you know, just how he could articulate things. The one thing that's missing that everyone talks about is that they said he was, when he wanted to be as good a mime as Chaplin, that he mm -hmm. could just become the character and talk about, well, you know, the business would go like this or the character would sing this way. 
And then the animators all said, you would go back to your drawing table and try and think, now how can I do it as well as Walt did? Hmm. Wow. In terms of a lot of the earlier material, um, again, having some background in literature and illustration, that also helps to find what are the sources of you know, the images or how have other people interpreted them. And I have a couple of friends who are big collectors of children's books who are always very generous and allow me to rummage through them delicately because they're old books and to shoot pages so you can find the Walter Crane or the Edmund Dulac or any of the other great illustrators and how could they handle those characters uh, over time. The, the Gustave Doré um, uh, engravings for Sleeping Beauty are quite wonderful, but so much more elaborate than anything you could possibly animate it. Right. He's fascinated by um, that image of the slumbering forest and what happens over the centuries as the spiders build webs and the vines, you know, enshroud the castle. It, it, I'll tell you in the in in your Sleeping Beauty book, um, in particular, Once Upon a Dream. My daughter is is always fascinated with the first part of the book where you show all the the artwork over the centuries that has depicted that particular story and those particular characters. That really, she finds that fascinating because, you know, she originally only knew Sleeping Beauty from the animated film. So that opens up her world and she realizes, no, you can actually, you can tell this story many different ways. You can think about it many different ways. And, you know, for a, for, for a four-year-old, that's quite a revelation to find out that you can, you can come at a thing many, many different ways. Yeah, I think that's, uh, if anything, even clearer in the uh, looking at Beauty and the Beast. And since they never specify in the original stories what Beast looks like, that gives the artist uh, a field day. So, you know, he's been everything from a cat to a walrus to a bear to... Well, I'm even looking at the one here on, on page 55 where he looks like a baboon. Yeah. Which is fascinating, yeah. Yeah, you can... So, I, if that's stimulating uh, children's imagination um, so much the better because one thing that I, I remember talking to Glenn Keane about when he was beginning to animate Beast was that the sense of responsibility said that the Disney Beast is going to be the Beast all children see and so he has to be a really good one because he's going to be important yeah and that you can't, originally you think, oh, he's beast, he can be anything, I can give him horns, I can give him funny ears, I can give him a long snout, and Glenn said as he experimented with those, the character's just, the character's just like an alien, and didn't work, and so by going back to, uh, again, in the, the great Disney tradition, going back to the real world, studying animals, studying uh, movement, he began to see, okay, I can take this from a bison, and this from a gorilla, and this from a wolf, and we get a beast who is really a beast. And I think that was one of the things that was so um, revelatory about the, the Beauty and the Beast when the Disney version came out, was that for the first time we had a beast who really was a beast. He could walk on all fours. As good as some of the live action versions are, particularly the Cocteau, which I don't need to tell you about, yeah. he's always a man in a cat suit. Yeah. <laughs> and now for the first time, he is an animal. He can, he can walk on four feet. He's more powerful. He can dispense a pack of wolves, and you believe it. Yeah. So that was something we had never seen before 
in that story, again, as beautiful as some of the other versions are. And I, I particularly like the part of the book where y you go through all of the different versions of Gaston, who was not always a a lumbering masculine hunter character, but he was very uh, kind of a foppish dandy at a certain point. And it's fascinating to see that evolution as well, how they're trying to sort of work out the character in the artwork and, and find his characteristics and find his place in the story. Well, you know, traditionally, everyone from, from Shakespeare on down has known, somebody needs attention, excuse me, that um, you're, the, the characters who are interesting are the villains and the clowns because the heroes and the heroines have too many limits. So finding an interesting villain you know, is a challenge, and what do you need to juxtapose Beast, who is the monstrous exterior, with what becomes a gentle nature? Yeah. So finding a counterpart to that, who would sort of yang to his yin or, or black to his white, you know, was um, a real challenge, and it took a lot of time, and it took, you know, all these films take thousands of drawings, and Beauty and the Beast also got off to a, a completely bad start when they were being uh, more literally French and kind of 18th century. They were, um, it wasn't a musical yet. It was going to be much darker. And that was a version being worked on in England by some of the same artists who would work on the final film under the direction of uh, the Purdoms. And they showed that to um, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Peter Schneider and Don Hahn, you know, said he still remembers it quite vividly as the producer that they showed him the first X minutes. And Jeffrey just said, no, this isn't working. It's got to be lighter. It's got to be more fun. It needs to be a musical. We're going to bring in uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken uh, to start working with you and, and to redo it. And the story artists um, at the studio all credit Ashman with really finding the story, that it was Beast's story. And there's a, um, a story I love from Chris Sanders, who was, again, one of the key story artists on it, before he went on to uh, Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon, that he turned to um, Ashman and said, well, this may be the stupidest question in the world, but how do you know where to put the songs? And Ashman replied, that's easy. They go at the turning points. Hmm. And Chris said, that was a revelation that he was doing the heavy lifting right there, finding, um, you know, what are the turning points? Yeah. Uh, and that once those tent poles are, are set up, it's much easier to, uh, to, uh, to build the rest of the story around them because you know at this point, okay, Bell and Beast realize they're falling in love or, you know, this is happening. So... He said that, that just made the story work uh, both easier and more interesting. And Ashman was such an extraordinary talent. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone, I think, who still inspires us, but whose talent in many of the later films we miss. I, I could not agree more. I think losing him was just a, a devastating blow to not just to animation and to, to musicals, but to, uh, to film and stage storytelling. He, he was. I, I've always said there there are only two lyricists to my mind in history who who are who go down as greats, not just as lyricists but great storytellers, and that's uh, Howard Ashman and Alan J. Lerner. They're they're the only two who really transcended being lyricists and were able to sort of shape the movies and the musicals that they were a part of in a in a really profound way. Hmm. I might 
I might put Sondheim in there too. But yeah, no, true. Uh, he, but he does everything. Sondheim does everything. Yeah, that's true. Yes. So yeah. that, that's not fair. That's yeah. uh, that's bringing in Super Steve. Um, <laughs> Well, well, Charles, th thank you so much for speaking with us. The the books are just tremendous. I would urge everybody to uh, to get them uh, together. Once Upon a Dream, from Perot's Sleeping Beauty to Disney's Maleficent, uh, was the the first one you did like this. And then I think you just completely outdid yourself with Tale as Old as Time: The Art and Making of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Inside stories from the animated classic to the new live action film. Uh, Charles, you are a, a gentleman and a scholar. I thank you again for speaking with us, and uh, uh, we will see each other again soon on a film week to uh, to talk about uh, some amazing new animated film. And a curmudgeon. Don't forget a curmudgeon. All right. Thank you, Charles. Thanks, Wade. Take care. All right, and that is it for this week. We'll be back next week. Hopefully Mark will find someone who, uh, maybe someone with an organ. Unbelievable. <laughs> you know, hold, hold, how, about, how about a church organ? Oh, the there enormous we church organ. Uh, or maybe a, f maybe a full combo. Somebody who will rehearse with their full jazz combo here every single night. What the hell is wrong with real estate agents? <laughs> well, we're going to take you out, actually, with a track from To the Moon and Back, Blackmore's Night, 20 Years and Beyond. I, if you haven't heard of Blackmore's Night, you don't hear them on radio play because they do Renaissance rock, and they've been around for 20 years, and I love these guys. Uh, this is a lot of their best hits all gathered together in a new two-disc set from uh, Eagle Vision. And, uh, you, you know, Richie Blackmore and Candace Knight are, are the, 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 the two people that held this thing together, and their music is terrific. I love it. It's, uh, it's Renaissance rock, Blackmore's Night, uh, to the moon and back. You're going to love it. Enjoy this. We'll see you next week. <laughs>